Hello, New York City friends and On Being listeners. I'm thrilled to share that On Being Studios will be doing two events as part of the Work It Festival from WNYC Studios. I'll be recording a live episode of On Being with poet and MacArthur Genius Fellow Claudia Rankin on the evening of November 12th. And our executive producer, Lily Percy, will be speaking with comedian and writer Justin Sayre on the night of November 14th. That's for our fabulous new podcast, This Movie Changed Me. Join us for these two conversations. Buy tickets now at workitevents.com. That's workit, W-E-R-K-I-T, events.com. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with neurosurgeon James Doty. There is a shorter, produced version of this at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Of course, we are doing this, you know, there are plenty of reasons for us to talk, but we're doing this on the occasion of the book. So here's what I want to say. Um, uh, I'm, I, I, I just, I just, you know, the, this is not about your book. It's about your life, and it's about who you are and how you think and what you do. Um, and it is going to want make people want to go out and buy the book. Um, but we're so I'm just saying we're not going to talk about the book. But it's going, it, but it is going to actually run all the way through it. So I'm just, but right. basically, you should just follow. Just I'm, I'm in charge. I will guide you. <clears throat> Um, I sense you like that, too. Oh, yeah, I do. I like to be in control. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> in certain circumstances. Um, <laughs> um, no, I just, I, I find it, I, it's terrible when people um, have written something and they get, tr- they actually trivialize it by getting into a PR mode. Which, which I understand why they get into because you are asked to get into that mode, but I, you're not going to well, do that. And no, honestly, you know, it's people ask me, "Geez, aren't you excited?" And you know, I'm not. My agenda is not to be an author, right. per se. <clears throat> I have told a story because people have been moved by some of my stories, yeah. And it ultimately just translated into this book. And I even tell people if. It sells one, and that one person has benefited. That's okay. I, yeah. I'm, it's not my. I'm not chasing after this, so I don't actually. They get mad at me because I'm not that. Like, oh my God, I'm going to be here. I'm going to be there. It's just not <laughs> right, my right. deal. Well, no, I and so I, you know, I said all of that because I need to just about the methodology. But I, I do want to reiterate it. It is a, it is a beautiful book, and you do have an incredible story. And I'm, I've been so enjoyed getting ready to talk to you. Um, and oh, of well, course, thank I'd, you. Um, yeah. And I've, been, I've knew, known for a long time that I'd talk to you, so this, this just happens to be the moment. <laughs> well, we're, we're here, okay. which is wonderful. So, Chris, how are we? Do we need levels? Okay, we can just start. And um, we, we're getting going a little bit. We're getting going a bit late. We'll, we'll probably go till about, uh, uh, is it, is it t- 11, 24 your time? So, Correct. Um, probably go until uh i can't count unfortunately (laughs) 
one-ish, one-ish, yeah. yeah. One-ish, or maybe, one-ish. probably before, probably before. But no problem. Between, between 1231. Okay, all right. I, I'm here for you. All right, thank you. I'm here for you, too. What? <laughs> so, um, so I... I, I almost always start my conversations by inquiring about the religious or spiritual background of someone's childhood. Um, and, and sometimes it's a, it's a story of a religious upbringing. It really occurs to me as I, as I read your story that, you know, the spiritual background of your childhood had a lot of despair and deprivation in it and and the kind of spiritual fallout of that um, i don't know how how would you start to i guess i guess what i'm doing in that is I, I don't, you know that question about the spiritual background of one's childhood is not necessarily a sweet sweet spiritual thing well i think you're right i i think for many people what brings them if you will, to a place of being spiritual is actually deprivation and suffering. And uh, one of the challenges for me, which made it more difficult, was that I was self-aware enough as a child that I couldn't understand how people could be suffering and individuals not intervening, or even how... I could be in a situation where I was suffering or my family was suffering, Mm -hmm. and there didn't seem to be a way out. Yet there were other people who seemed to have things going well for them and uh, to be connected and to, if you use the term successful. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't come to grips with why some people, it seemed everything worked out, and other people who had no reason for it not to work out in the sense of having done nothing wrong, were suffering. And that incongruity or paradox was painful for me because I would sit there and, and, and struggle with, if there's a God, then why isn't he doing something or she, and if there's a just God? Yeah, and let's, I mean, let's, you know, your father was alcoholic, your, your mother was incapacitated and depressed and... Your brother was troubled and bullied, and it sounds like you were off. And you were you were watching all that as a child, and and obviously as an intelligent child who 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 was was searching. And it sounds like you often were getting into fights, kicked out of school, often hungry. Um, you slapped a nun once. I have to say that was a little shocking. <laughs> uh, uh, well, you know, it's interesting because um, I had transferred uh, to the school, this Catholic school, because my father actually had gotten a job there, although it was very brief employment. Uh, but uh, as a result, it allowed me to go to the Catholic school. The problem was Catholic school was multiple grades ahead of the school I had attended, mm-hmm. and I was suddenly thrown into this difficult environment, and I did not know how to behave in that environment. And this particular nun assumed I had done something wrong when, in fact, I had done nothing wrong and just walked up to me and literally slapped me, which I'd never had that done to me before, at least uh, in that context. And, and my reaction, uh, just as 
uh, a person uh, yeah. <laughs> who has been in fights was to hit them back, and uh, that that was my last day in Catholic school. Okay. Um, yeah. So, and so you have you it, that it, it's it was a hard, hard beginning, a hard backdrop, and then you do have this dare I say magical story of being introduced um, also at the, you know in that pivotal time of adolescence to a new way to experience yourself to calm yourself amidst that extreme chaos of your childhood and even to begin to reimagine and shape your life and it it happened in when you walked into you kind of wandered into a magic shop um, you were out on your bike looking for a plastic thumb that you used for magic trips trip magic tricks that you thought your brother had taken. That was in 1968. Right. Yeah, I lived in the high desert, Lancaster, California. And uh, I think the challenge for me and I think for people who have similar types of experiences is even at that age, if you don't see that there's a possibility of getting out of that situation and you have no resources or mentors or even an understanding that there's something different that's possible, then you accept a situation and you just say, there's no future for me, so who cares? Yeah. And I think what happens, unfortunately, is you discard yourself. People discard you, they look down on you, and then you begin to believe what it is that they're saying, and, and, and it's it's you horrible. Had, you felt that way. You you had you feel looking back at yourself at that age. You felt like you were, that's the place you'd walked into. Uh, yeah, and again, uh, through no fault of my own. Mm-hmm. Although I think it, as children, uh, they take on blame for situations that well, yeah. it must be because I'm deficient or I've done something or, or there's uh, something wrong with me. And then when you've been in that situation and you feel there's no hope, it doesn't matter whether you're good, you're bad or anything uh, because you have no future. Yeah. And I was beginning right. to go down the path of um, being a delinquent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and how old were you in that, on that day in 1968 when you walked into the magic shop? Uh, I was 12, actually. I, mm. I used to think I was 13, and then when I started really looking into this, uh, it actually, I was 12. The which, malleability uh, was, of memory. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So the, this, this woman, I mean, we're going to be using her name throughout this conversation. She's quite, quite a remarkable figure for you to have in your life, named Ruth, um, who, who really kind of appeared for six weeks. Um, and she... She offered to teach you magic of a different kind. And in fact, what she introduced you to is really are, are the fundaments of the spiritual and practical art of mindfulness that you now study as a scientist and, and have continued to practice as a human being. Um, she continued to call it magic in that book. I'm, I'm so curious. You never say... Um, where she had learned this. Do, do you have any idea? Um, I mean, 1968, I guess, meditation had come to the West for, with a few people, but 
who were her? She was your teacher. Who were her teachers? Do you know? Well, you know, uh, I mean, certainly we had Alan Watts, but uh, uh, yeah, honestly, I have no clue. I mean, imagine I uh, just fortuitously or serendipitously walked into a magic shop for the purpose of actually buying a new plastic thumb uh, that I was using to do tricks with. And I meet this woman who I actually describe as sort of this earth mother type. She's yeah. wearing a, a muumu with this flowing gray hair and uh, uh, she's just somewhat overweight and she has this radiant smile. And amazingly, she has nothing to do with the magic store. She is simply the owner's mother who happens to be sitting there while he's running an errand. And she's and visiting, right? She's just visiting for six weeks. Exactly, just mm -hmm. uh, there for the summer. Yeah. And I mean, she taught you the basics of, you know, following the breath, to relax the body, to calm the mind, using visual imagery. I love this language you used, actually, in your following the flickering candle, that using a candle to stretch the gap between my thoughts, setting intentions. Really, she introduced you to loving-kindness meditation, beginning with compassion for yourself. No, that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because so many people, <clears throat> they take on this feeling that somehow they're not worthy or they're not accomplished enough or who they really are isn't good enough for other people. And as a result, they start creating a, uh, a dialogue uh, in their head about that. And... Uh, uh, and it's, it's, I think, very common in the West and certainly one that I had created for myself and that was really limiting me as to who I saw myself being because, to be honest, the dialogue that we have created ends up being who we are. And, mm -hmm. uh, and that limits us to what we're capable of. And you're, you're talking about the, the dialogue that, that we have inside our heads, right, that we carry around and reinforce. And... Absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's one that uh, also we allow others to uh, help create that narrative. Yeah. There's, there's this, you know, amazing um, – there's there's so much that's so amazing about this story. But so Ruth, one of – there's a passage that really struck me where she's – and I think maybe it was that very first day that you wandered in and, and she kind of said uh, to you, you know, or you were having a discussion with her about, you know, why, ma why, does ma why do magic tricks work? And there you were talking about the, the traditional magic tricks. And, and she said to you, the brain, as busy as it can be, is actually very lazy, that this is why magic tricks work. And yes, magic, magic works because people are so easily distracted. But she said, they're not distracted by hand gestures. Most people who are watching a magic show aren't really there watching the magic show. They are regretting something they did yesterday or worrying about something that might happen tomorrow. So they're not really at the magic show to begin with. So how could they see the plastic thumb at all? <laughs> Which is such a fascinating diagnosis of, uh, I don't know, you know, kind of Buddhist psychology. I mean, kind of, and all these things we're learning to understand even better now through science. Well, no, that's exactly right. I mean, mm -hmm. there was a study that was done that showed that the average person, almost 80% of the time, they're not focused on the present. 
they're focused on exactly that, regret about the past or anxiety about the future. And when your attention is in those places, you can't give your full attention to even what's happening to you at that moment. And it limits what you can accomplish in that moment and how you can engage in that moment. And it's, uh, unfortunately, it's a horrible uh, distraction. And it, again, limits us to the connections we are able to make and actually even who we are. Because there's a difference when you engage with someone and being absolutely there with them versus always thinking about all these other things that are going on. And, it, and it's uh, the techniques that she taught me and my own experience since then have just shown me the difference because it's like suddenly you realize that you have been wearing glasses that have been fogged up and you take them off and there's a vibrancy, there's a, a the colors are different, the interaction is different, and that's what being present offers you. And so, um, as as your as her six weeks with you drew to an end, and near the end, she she talked to you about intention, and she asked you to draw a list of and, and sort of becoming who you want to be, and and she asked you to draw a list, and I mean, one of the things that was at the top of your list was you wanted to be rich, you didn't want to be poor, um, but you also had on that list um, that you wanted to be a doctor, and it, it sounds like. Maybe this had been inside you, but it found expression. Um, and it's so interesting to me to look at the trajectory of your life and, you know, this place where you started and see this fascinating wavy line between that intention and the context in which you gave voice to it and the fact that you you now, you know, you don't you not only became a doctor, you became a brain surgeon and a person who's involved in um, all these things we're learning about how the brain and the body interact and 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 who we are in the world um, do, do, that that I mean do you think about that that and, and it, you 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 followed that um, true to the spirit of, of 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 that context in which you voiced it but in a way that neither one of you could possibly have imagined because so much of what you're doing now is new discovery no, it's actually, uh, uh, obviously, it's, it, it is my story, but even I reflect on it and find it quite amazing. In fact, uh, <clears throat> as you uh, know, I ultimately ended up uh, creating the center at Stanford to examine uh, the neuroscience of, of mindfulness, compassion, and yeah. altruism, uh, as well as empathy. But <clears throat> the idea that the Dalai Lama, who became our founding benefactor uh, is extraordinary and because uh, even though I had a desire to explore this area ultimately after I became a physician and a neurosurgeon uh, at Stanford I had actually in some ways I had a spirituality in the sense of this belief about ultimate goodness and kindness but I had no if you will, define practice or relationship. And really, literally, one day I was uh, walking through the Stanford campus and it just popped into my head. And again, no background with the Dalai Lama whatsoever. It just popped into my head. I should invite him to come to Stanford and talk 
about compassion. And then it manifested. Mm-hmm. You have said, um, you've written, the brain is one of the most beautiful things I have ever seen. And to explore its mysteries and find ways to heal it is a privilege I have never taken for granted. We all have brains, but most of us have never seen them. Tell me, tell me about that. Tell me about the beauty of the brain that you are privileged to see. Meaning just physically, what do you see? Well, it it is amazing. And um, obviously I do this job of being a neurosurgeon every day, but... Every time I'm in the position to, I hate to say, open a person's skull, it is, it's extraordinary in the sense that this is where we live. This is us. And when you open the covering of the brain, the dura, and what you see is these hills and valleys, if you will, that are sort of pinkish and you see blood vessels coursing over the surface, and there's a membrane that's sort of sometimes cloudy, other times or other places clear where fluid is and it's pulsating, and that pulsating is matching the rhythm of your heart. Hmm. And to think that within that is who each of us is, and that one event could occur and you're not how you were and something can be taken from you that you may never get back and in fact everything can be taken from you and to be in a position where you're able to be there and help a person who has something that is trying to to take who they are away from them and being able to successfully do that. Yeah, you help protect just, that and, and heal it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an incredible privilege, and it's one that very, very few people get. And that's why with our residents, and uh, I train residents at Stanford, this is not something, while it may be routine to us, being given the privilege of caring for people and and being able to do what we do, our interaction with these people oftentimes is the most important event that will occur in their life or the lives of their family, yeah. and to never take that for granted. Yeah. I mean, you have also, in your years, your decades in this field, um, you know, in fact, one of the things that Ruth, your teacher in the magic shop, was teaching you um, is something we now call neuroplasticity. Um, and yet we didn't, that word did not exist in 1968. And you, you, you must have watched this, and, that, and that, that is this simple and astonishing idea that our brains can change across the lifespan and we can change our brains through our behavior. Um, and you must, have, you must have watched that discovery and the naming of this with a, a kind of sense of homecoming, I'm imagining. No, that's exactly right, because as you point out, I mean, prior to that, we used to think that the brain and the neurons it was all immutable and nothing could be changed. And, uh, and really, the gift that uh, Ruth gave me was my first experience with uh, 
neuroplasticity. I mean, fundamentally, in the six weeks that I interacted with her, what she taught me truly rewired my brain. And as I tell people prior to that, I felt like a leaf being blown by an ill wind. Yeah. I had just no control over anything, I, and, and th events would happen, and uh, I couldn't do anything about them. And I felt, and I think it was in fact reality, that at that point when I met her, I had limited to no possibilities. And when I, after that six week period of time, I suddenly had this vision that anything and everything was possible. And what happened to me? And, I, and, and that, that vision of possibility was so strong and so deep and so powerful that it was absolutely amazing. And the thing is, though, that my own personal circumstances fundamentally did not change at all. I went right, home to the same... for years, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you, you say this interesting thing that you said... You say that the brain, and it relates to this, what you're saying, that the brain doesn't distinguish between an experience that is intensely imagined and an experience that is real. And that the brain will always choose what is familiar over what is unfamiliar, which becomes an, such an amazing way to think about the point of practicing, that you make another kind of presence, another kind of being in the world, familiar to your, to your own body, to your own mind. No, that's exactly right. And, uh, and it's true. In fact, when studies have been done uh, utilizing different types of uh, measuring devices, such as functional magnetic resonance imaging, or EEG, we see that if you are thinking of doing an action, that part of your cortex starts being stimulated. And in fact, studies have shown that even if you think about working out those muscles will actually start responding as if you're working out. Oh, I kind of wish so, you hadn't told me that one. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to stop working out? <laughs> I'm just going to sit and think about it, yeah. It sounds like a but good shortcut. <laughs> it's not quite as effective. <laughs> but that is amazing. That's amazing. No, and it's, uh, and, and this is, uh, again, what people don't appreciate is really the power of their intention to yeah. change everything. Right, which which gives... And so I, I want to say something I appreciate. You, you do have this kind of incredible, you know, on some sense, you know, if it were a movie, it would be a rag-to-riches story in some ways. Um, but you often say, you know, if life were a movie, but it's not. Because the truth is, even every rag-to-riches story has lots of messiness because it's also a human story. Um but 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 and so you are you are careful in your own telling of your story and in your own writing, not to glorify and romanticize and and to nuance and you know a notion like following your dream, um, which can be too glib. But but in fact, what you're describing, what 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 you know, what we know about the brain, what you what you know, in a very concrete way about the brain. That this, that it, it, you know, what you just described about the, the the actual real world physical power of intention does give a new connotation to the notion of of following your dream. And I mean, in fact, you 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 really almost didn't get into medical school, and it's kind of 
you know, it was, it was it was kind of miraculous that you did, and you really you really just you fought for it. Um. So I mean, your 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 own you know, it's not like everything went well for you after that point, but there there it, it does feel like there was some actual power, actual force to to intention that you're describing through science and that you really kind of lived. Well, I think that's right. I, I think that when I talk about visualization or these techniques to uh, focus your intention, the reality is that it's not as if there's a straight line from point A to point right. B because, as you point out, the messiness of life gets in the way sometimes. But if your intention is strong, you will get to point B. It's just it may not in any way be how you thought. Right. And right. Uh, as an example, uh, you talk about that story. You know, here I had gone to college uh, through a very interesting uh, situation. Well, and also, and which in uh, itself was not expected and felt kind of miraculous that you went to college at all, right? Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, Just that. I, I had no mentors who sort of let me know even how to do it, and even my college counselor had dismissed me as probably going to technical school. And what happened was that I was sitting next to a girl in a science class, and she was filling out an application. And I asked her what she was doing, and she said she was applying to college. And it was my first realization that I needed to apply to college. And even though I had created this intention I wanted to go to college, mm. I had absolutely no understanding how. And what happened was she... Uh, uh, she asked me where I was going to college, and uh, I said, well, you tell me where you're going. And she said, you see Irvine. And I said, well, that's where I'm going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I had no, <laughs> no clue about any other college or even that college. And, uh, uh, and uh, she asked me if I had applied, and I said, no, I hadn't gotten my application. And she just happened to have one. And I applied to one college, and that is where I went. Yeah. Uh, but the rest of the story, as you alluded to, is that in my own situation, it, I was ill-prepared for college, number one, and I had to leave multiple times to take care of uh, really complex family situations. My mother had tried to commit suicide, was in the hospital, or my father had been arrested. And all sorts of things. And it caused me to leave college and drop classes where, or to the point where my grade point average suffered to such a degree that I ended up having a 2.53 GPA when it came time to apply to medical school. And at that time, the average GPA to get into medical school was, I think, 3.79. Yeah, yeah. uh, and I had no hope of, uh, of getting in. Yeah, you essentially talked your way in. I mean, it's more complicated than that, but that's the gist of it. Well, what I pointed out, and uh, maybe to clarify the story a little bit, mm -hmm. is that when it came time to apply, it turned out that, at least at Irvine, you had to have a letter from a pre-medical committee. And I, again, sort of uh, found this out and went to ask for an interview and I was refused with the secretary, in fact, telling me that she would not give me an interview because it was a waste of everyone's time. 
And, you know, imagine as a human being to be told that an interaction with you is a waste of people's time. Yeah. And it's nothing could be more horrible than that or humiliating or, or denigrating. And who gives people the right to make such judgments? And to make a long story short, I told her that I would not leave until she gave me that appointment. And she did give me the appointment. And what happened was, as a 20-year-old, I walked into this room with three people with their arms crossed uh, who basically said, you've demanded this interview. You're not qualified. Uh, you have the interview. So there. And uh, what I did in that uh, period of time that I had was I forced them to look at me not as that GPA or a number, and, w and in some ways this is a method of, ob uh, of objectifying me as a human being, mm -hmm. but to look at me as, in fact, a human being who has a life, who has a story, who has aspirations. And I, I said to them, I said, who gave you the right to take away people's dreams? And nobody has that right. And at the end of our somewhat one-sided discussion, <clears throat> uh, <laughs> they were all cried. <laughs> and to make a long story short, they, all, they ended up uh, giving me the highest uh, recommendation <laughs> uh, that you could receive. <laughs> so, yeah. There oh, you have it. It's amazing. So, you know, somewhere you say you've never believed in a powerful supreme being and you're not sure what the laws of physics would say about all of this, but that you keep the first law of thermodynamics in your mind. Um, that energy. That's right. Right? And you wanted to say just. Oh, oh, see, Jim, uh, I was gonna, supposed to tell you. Um, could you turn your phone off? I guess the uh, oh. technologically astute ears here are, are hearing it. Oh, here, let me. Uh, I'm glad you technologically astute people are so technologically astute. <laughs> Uh, <clears throat> yeah, so the first law of th thermodynamics. Yes, uh, energy cannot uh, can either be created nor destroyed, but it can be transmuted or changed or redirected. And, uh, and really, uh, that's how I've viewed things. Yeah. It's something so interesting to me in the story of Ruth, again, your teacher in the magic shop, is that I mean, I have to say, when I'm reading the story, there's something mysterious about it that, you know, you, you turn up and she kind of adopts you for the summer. And it seems like it happened kind of instantaneously. And it turns out later you learn that she had been hoping and longing, it seems, to spend some time with her grandson that summer and was kind of brokenhearted that that hadn't transpired. But she had this certainty that she was going to spend time with a young person. And when you walked in... Again, kind of transmuting her energy, her intention. She she decided you were that young person. No, I think that's uh, exactly what happened, and and in in some ways it's quite sad, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Well, uh, here uh, her son was estranged from his uh, ex-wife, and uh, who had custody of uh, of of her grandson, and. Uh, through a fight, I think, that occurred fairly shortly before I walked into that magic shop, it was decided he would not come for the summer. And I know uh, that she was very uh, ultimately disappointed uh, with that. And so uh, it, it is amazing that in some ways you're absolutely right. For that period of time, 
it was almost as if she became a part of my family yeah. and and loved me deeply. Yeah. So um, you, you point out that um, at the beginnings of science, as we know it, in Egypt and Greece, um, the brain was viewed as pretty uninteresting, and it was the heart that was considered the seat of intelligence and consciousness. And, and one of the frontiers you work on now is how we are understanding the myriad ways the brain and the heart communicate and, in fact, work back and forth on each other. And, in fact, although for us and for you in particular, you know, we, we are understanding just the incredible mystery and majesty of the brain, we're also, again, but in a very new way from ancient Egypt, understanding the heart as an organ of intelligence. Um, that's, that's very interesting for me to, to read about, but I, I'm not sure I'm saying it correctly, so... No, I think you're saying it exactly correctly. I, I think that, in fact, poets and uh, have for uh, you know hundreds, if not thousands, of years uh, uh, talked about this connection. And in fact, I tell a story in uh, about how Richie Davidson, who's also a neuroscientist, yes, and he's been on was, the show, and he's the one who really he's well, he's one of the people who helped name neuroplasticity by working by studying yes. meditating monks, yeah. Exactly. But in the process of that study, and and he was actually trying to examine compassion, and he had them wear uh, the CEG, uh, um, uh, if you will, a hat uh, or cranial cap. And he told these monks that he was uh, going to be studying compassion. And uh, they all started laughing at him. Yeah. And uh, uh, he thought it was because this cap looked so funny. But one of the monks said, explained to him, uh, it's not that the cap is funny. It's because you don't understand compassion is in the heart. And it was this understanding that deep emotions are expressed in the heart and that there is this, if you will, mind-heart connection that's extraordinarily powerful and we now know through anatomy and a variety of studies that there's immense amount of neural innovation that comes from the brain, the brainstem into the heart and it's a two-way street and they can have powerful effects on each other and in fact we know that uh, in fact, there's even a condition called broken heart syndrome to show you how powerful this connection is. A that medical in, condition. A it's medical condition that was first de described in Japan where a person loses somebody or has a tragic end of an affair and they're so emotionally overwrought that they, their heart just stops. And in fact, we also know that this connection uh, is such that you can actually train yourself to affect what we call your heart rate variability, which has a huge impact on cardiac function. And if you can train yourself, uh, you can actually decrease your risk of sudden cardiac death. And in fact, if you have uh, a decrease in heart rate variability, which is all oftentimes manifested as chronic stress, it has a very, very deleterious effect on cardiac function 
and is one of the leading causes of sudden cardiac death. Yeah, I, I read that in your writing, too, that, that, that this is one of the greatest causes of sudden cardiac death and that it's a result of chronic arousal to threat and that you said this is the body's equivalent of shouting fire. Exactly. And, and it's true. What we don't appreciate uh, is that as a species, we actually uh, are not uh, made to function even in modern day society. You know, our threat mechanism was created. And remember, our DNA has not changed for over 2,000 years. Our threat mechanism is associated with being on the savanna in Africa and seeing a lion and then running away, and all these hormones are released that allow our heart to beat stronger and harder and, and faster and our muscles to get adequate blood supply so we can run. And then immediately afterwards, they resort to normal. But in modern society, there's so many distractions that result in us always, or for at least for many people, to always have this low-level sense of threat that they're chronically releasing these deleterious hormones. Yeah. And as a result, it has a huge, huge negative impact on, on the body's health, but also on mental health. Now, the wonderful thing, though, is that with tra training, mental training, meditation practice, uh, some of the things that I've described, it can actually change this dynamic where you have a constant sense of calmness and being present and being engaged, uh, which is quite the opposite of what we're talking about. Yeah. And when you're able to do that or train yourself to do that, again, it changes everything. It changes even every interaction you have with another person. Yeah. I mean, I was also struck in kind of in in your earliest introduction to this it, um with with Ruth um I could just see you you described you know you're 12 years old first of all you're a 12 year old boy but how you were just um and you were and you were actually in circumstances of threat right you weren't just making this up it wasn't about your iPhone I mean you 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 had um you were living in a in a in a chaotic circumstance and and how she's, you know, how you were always moving, and you were shaking your leg, and and how she said to you, again with this intelligence that was so prescient, you know, your body of, is full of signs of what is going on inside you, even if you can't put words to it, even if somebody asked you how you feel, you wouldn't give the full answer, but your body is manifesting it. No, that's uh, that's exactly right, and I think that uh, that's what we forget that. Oftentimes, what we're mentally sensing, uh, for an acute observer, our body is expressing. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and this is why people can oftentimes interpret uh, immediately on a subconscious level, if you will, uh, how you are mentally. And in fact, then they respond to if you will, your own level of threat. And it can create actually a very negative yeah. dynamic. It, right. It's the same thing. I tell people that if you walk into a room and there's a person there who, you know, by their body language is relaxed, they have a smile on their face, 
They look you in the eye. Uh, they're engaging. Uh, that immediately allows you to open up. And when you have a person who's sitting there with, let's say, their legs crossed or tapping their foot or their arms crossed with a scowl on their face, and, and I'm giving you these extremes, but yeah. y you're not sitting there going, oh, well, this is what a wonderful, nice person. This is great. I'm, I'm happy to be sitting next to them. Yeah. And um, you, so one of the pieces that you describe that took you, that you needed more life to learn, was in fact the work of truly opening your heart. Um, and I, I want to I talk a little bit about that. Um, there was something that Ruth said to you that you need to understand, and this is just the human condition, right? What we think we want isn't always what's best for us and others. Um, for that, you need your heart to open. Um, and that, 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 was a, that was a longer lesson to learn, right? Yes, no, uh, and a painful one. Uh, Ruth, in this interaction with her as a 12-year-old, taught me, if you will, how to be uh, attentive and focused. She taught me how to have intention uh, um, and to visualize what I wanted. And ultimately, she talked about opening your heart. But I really, I got it on some level and understood it. And through my own pain, had experienced what it's like to not be treated well or to be dismissed or uh, not to be recognized as being in pain or worthy of being cared for. But as I took on what I had learned from her to allow me to achieve what I thought was success, I became ultimately something that I wasn't proud of. I was uh, very forcefully uh, trying to achieve what I thought was success. And, you know, we talked about this list that I had made that had yeah. money at the top. I chased after that. And I truly believed that if I was able to get money, that that was really the issue because money would give me control. And the problem was that, that and the solution was having control, that if I had control, everything would be better and I would be happy. Right. And it was through money uh, that that would uh, give me that control. And I say that it was a chimera. It was a complete, completely false assumption. And in fact, when I had nominally, quote unquote, everything, I realized I had nothing. And, and how do you understand, again, we've been talking about how, of course, poets um, and mystics and contemplatives have used this language of the open heart forever, but I, I, I think what's so interesting about you, I mean, one of the things that's so interesting is how you walk back and forth across the line of the human and the scientific. So, I mean, when we talk about living with an open heart, you know, how does the scientist in you understand what's happening when you open your heart to, you know, one place you said is, um, when we go inward and our heart is open, 
we will connect with the heart, and the heart will compel us to go outward and connect with others. And in fact, I think that's the case. You know, as a species, <clears throat> we fundamentally evolved uh, to care and nurture initially, if you will, our nuclear family, but ultimately our uh, hunter-gatherer tribe. Yeah. And that has uh, imbued us with certain uh, neural connections. And what I mean by that is that to have what we call theory of mind, to have uh, abstract thinking and complex language, which are really what in many ways define us as a species, uh, it ultimately required that our offspring be cared for for a decade and a half, maybe even two, uh, after uh, gestation, unlike other species where the offspring just run off into the forest. Yeah. And as a result, there had to be these very, very powerful pathways uh, that bonded us with our offspring. Uh, otherwise, uh, there would be no uh, advantage to expending so much energy. So these neural pathways result in us feeling good when we connect and making our physiology work better. And in fact, a number of studies have been done where people have been put in isolation or have been alone for periods of time and their world completely falls apart. And in fact, I give a talk about the difference between what I call transformation, which oftentimes we get with just a, a mindfulness practice of attention and focus, but you cannot have transcendence, which is this sense of meaning in your life unless you take this journey outward and this is a journey of connection to others because when you connect with others and you have an open heart and you embrace the other as you your physiology works at its best mm. right so 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 we're so we're living into that knowledge we're learning it seems to claim that about ourselves but but we also work, as as you've said, just also in this conversation with you know what you've called the baggage from evolution, which is fight or flight, and the, and and the impulse towards tribalism, and and we see those dynamics, uh, we see those dynamics at work, um, in our workplaces and geopolitically. I mean, the, 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 this is this human struggle. No, you're you're exactly right, and uh, uh, and we're seeing it playing out right now in the political arena. Yeah. We're seeing it playing out in different uh, parts of the world. And this is, you know, my own belief is that it is an understanding of this reality and that is ultimately going to define whether our species survives or not. Because having an open-heartedness having an understanding that the other is us is what will allow us 
to connect with others all over the world and care for them and not simply look at our own interests or our own agenda. The problem is that by the nature of the baggage that we were just talking about, we are oftentimes easily put into a position of being fearful and that played to because when we're fearful, what happens? We have a tendency to shut down. We don't want to have new experiences. Yeah. We want to have familiarity, which is typically being with people who look like us, act like us, who uh, um, think like us. And when you shut everything down, it does give you a sense of being safe, but it also keeps you chronically, uh, if you will, on pins and needles, wondering if you're going to be attacked. And of course, that's not a healthy way to live. And from a physiologic point of view, it's very, very unhealthy and in the long term deleterious to your health. And, and you know, it's interesting because you probably heard of this hormone uh, called oxytocin or mm -hmm. the bonding or nurturing or love hormone, where if you actually give it intranasally, it oftentimes has this effect of making you connect or bond with another person. What's interesting, though, is that if you take a use this and have a person who is outside of what you define as your tribe, if you will, it doesn't have the same effect. Huh. And so this is the danger of tribalism. And David DeSteno, at, uh, has, uh, a neuroscientist, has done work in this area where you can though break down these artificial barriers of separation by looking at another person who may seem very different, and this is also, I think, what the Dalai Lama has addressed frequently, is to look at the other person who may seem extraordinarily different from you in the context of their culture, their language, their religion, but then when you start realizing that they have the same goals, the same aspirations, the same desires as you, and even pick one or two of those and focus on those, suddenly these artificial barriers that create tribalism start breaking down. And this is what we see in a, a whole variety of experiments that you can actually, if you are interested, actually break down these barriers. Obviously, if you have individuals who understand the neuroscience enough to know how to manipulate people towards fear, yeah. you get obviously the opposite. Also, I, I guess people, people would have to not just be interested, but but feel safe enough to, um, to 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 feel those effects. Exactly. I mean, I mean obviously, to... if they're in a situation of war where they could actually be hurt by someone, that, but. I mean, so, but it, I mean, it seems to me, um, and I think often we, though, we dismiss these kinds of learnings by doing what I just did, which is saying, sure, but, but those people <laughs> over there are still killing each other, right? But in, and in fact, I mean, that's our, that's a problem. That's, 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 that's a, not the right move to make. I mean, it, because what, what I think you and so many others are working on now is, is taking a, a clear look at, this baggage from evolution and 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 trying to use this new knowledge we have of our brains and bodies to 
to to force or prompt to to practice the next a next stage of evolution where we as we can where we can start to move beyond those 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 in, instincts that actually bring out the worst in us and that create create our problems no i think uh that's exactly right because it's like knowledge in general. The mm-hmm. more you know, the more it allows you to respond. And when we understand the issues that you and I were just talking about, when we understand the nature of what we call cognitive biases, yeah. which we have a tendency to fall into, where we s- respond positively to evidence or statements that support our predetermined uh, uh, or already present uh, attitudes and recognize that that in itself is a problem, Uh, then you start seeing things with more clarity. And really what all of this is about in some ways and all of these techniques that Ruth taught me and that that a number of... uh, teachers have taught from a variety of traditions is to see ourselves and the world with greater clarity and that then allows you to live in this world in a much better and healthier way that not only improves your own life but it improves the lives of everyone around you yeah i want to ask you i'm we mentioned richie davidson a minute ago who who's at Madison and has done some of these important studies. Um, I'm pretty sure I heard him say, (laughs) but I want to check this out with you, that they're doing studies now, um, practicing compassion and actually seeing the amygdala shrink. Yes. uh, I mean, that's incredible. That should be on the front page of the New York Times, I think. (laughs) (laughs) No, And that's the amygdala is the fight or flight place in our brains. Yes, and we see other parts uh, of our brain actually thicken in gray matter with some of these practices. So it's, it is really quite extraordinary. In some ways, I guess you could say this is uh, analogous to strengthening certain muscles and uh, yeah. allowing others to atrophy. And again, it shows you, and this is what I tell people, is that just like muscles, our mental uh, muscle, if you will, responds to exercise. It's just which exercise you're going to do. And uh, one exercise relates to, uh, if you will, mindfulness, uh, compassion, loving kindness, having an open heart. And when you strengthen that muscle, the world becomes a vibrant place where you recognize the incredible uh, aspect of humanity that surrounds you in every person, how every person has this incredible potential to, to change the world. Or you can uh, do a form of exercise that makes you afraid, that makes you pull away, that think makes you think that people are your enemies or that people are out for something. And unfortunately, sometimes it's an active choice, but for many people, 
they don't even understand uh, that this is happening. I, I'm very intrigued when I, I see you writing about um, your work as a, as a surgeon operating on people's brains. And, um, and you know, there's a kind of... I've, heard, I've, I've, I've spoken with people across the years, especially people who've had some kind of catastrophic accident or, or disability or a really serious medical condition who talk about the violence of medical treatment... Right, that you know, extreme extreme medicine is 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 violent, and I mean, you 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 rip people's skin from their skulls, um, and yet um, part of your this thing you've learned about calming yourself is to stay very calm even when you might have somebody dying in front of you. So it's not a it's a very nuanced kind of compassion. But then I was really touched by the story you told also of. Um, operating on a four-year-old boy and how the hair has to be cut from his head. And normally that would be something that would just be part of the prep. But you you do it yourself as a ritual and you save those cuttings for his mother. Um, yes. Uh, as, you know, I think uh, uh, you know... Um, for a child to have to go through, if you will, the brutality of, of many of our medical practices, especially brain surgery, uh, it almost seems as though it should never occur. And to treat that event or that process as almost something uh, holy or spiritual uh, I, I think honors that, if that makes any sense. Mm. And knowing how a mother or a parent is is so terrified and afraid about what their child is about to undergo, uh, to give them something that shows that it's not only just the surgery itself and doing an excellent job with that, but just shows the intention of what you're doing in the sense of of taking the time to do this one thing that on one hand may seem fairly simple, but actually in another way shows that you are thinking about all aspects of this from beginning to end mm-hmm. and what it means to the parent and, and to the child. Yeah. Um, so, remind me, you you run this center at Stanford now, and it's it's the 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 anonym is C Care, and I cannot find. Could tell me what that stands for? I did not write that down. <laughs> center for Compassion, no, no. I believe, and Altruism Research, <laughs> something. And education. And education. Uh, okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education, and okay. yes, the acronym is Seek Care, which. Uh, is what I use. And it's interesting uh, because it is uh, uh, hard to remember. But uh, yes, and uh, um, as I mentioned, the, the Dalai Lama is actually the founding benefactor. And yeah. I don't know if I mentioned that story to you, but uh, I ultimately did meet with him and uh, uh, ask him to come and visit. And it 
and many of your listeners may know that he has a great interest in uh, uh, neuroscience and yeah. specifically neuroscience of compassion and meditation. But uh, he and I, after he had agreed to come uh, to visit Stanford, um, he and I engaged in a conversation about uh, this type of work, and he was quite moved about uh, the, this uh, work that I had begun. And at the end of it, uh, he began an animated conversation in Tibetan with his uh, primary English translator, Thupten Jinpa, who I know you know. Yes. Uh, and I actually had thought I had somehow offended uh, His Holiness. And at the end of that dialogue, um, uh, Jinpa explained to me that His Holiness was so moved by my intention that he wanted to make a personal donation. And, in fact, that donation he made was the largest he'd ever made to a non-Tibetan cause at mm. the time. And it really motivated a few other people to come forward with significant donations, which really allowed the center to flourish and to become uh, what it is today. Mm. So, so Jinpa, who is, as you said, um, the Dalai Lama's primary English um, translator, but, but much more, um, is involved in a one of your studies. I was just looking at the list of the research that you have going on. Um, it was kind of. An, I want to ask you about this: the studying the, I guess, the effects of um, meditation. I suppose um, adepts versus novices. So, so Richard Davidson started with what they called Olympic meditators who'd meditated thirty thousand times, or fifty thousand hours, or thirty thousand hours. And I guess novices would be, um, you know, people like me, um, who might be called dabblers, um, but well-intentioned. Um, and I, I, I um, what are you learning about uh, how the, you know, there, there were significant, not not necessarily completely understood yet, but significant effects, physiological effects of that kind of sustained meditation. What's being learned about uh, the more everyday kind of meditation that 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 so many of us are trying to fit into modern lives? Well, I think that's a good point. None of us or very few of us are really going to be able to do 30,000 hours, yeah. much less even 10,000 hours. But what we do know is that even short periods of time where you... Uh, are attentive, if you will, or mindful and have intention to open your heart, even that has a profound effect. And in fact, even after brief periods of meditation, we actually can study the epigenetic effect of how our genes are, are changing the expression, their expression, yeah. even with brief periods of meditation in the context of inflammation markers. Mm. And it's extraordinary because even with people who have meditated in this manner for as little as two weeks, you can see effects in regard to their blood pressure, in regard to the release of, of uh stress hormones and uh, effects on the immune system. And, you know, one of the big things that people don't appreciate is that a lot of disease is actually a manifestation of inflammation. 
and that is a manifestation of your uh, immune system not functioning well. And these types of practices actually can decrease that inflammation. And again, when you uh, do that, when you are able to decrease your stress hormones, if you will, down to their baseline level, it has a huge impact. So what happens is that your parasympathetic nervous system is engaged, if you will, or your vagus nerve or this nerve to your heart when it is... That's how the heart and the brain is, communicate a lot, right? That, exactly. Mm-hmm. When, when you're able to increase your vagal tone through these types of practices, there's a huge, huge benefit in terms of your uh, peripheral physiology and how your body works. And again, even with practices as, as short as uh, two weeks of, uh, of even mm-hmm. 15 to 20 minutes. And now, with some of the techniques that have been developed uh, out of Richie's lab, out of uh, our work at Seacare, and one of these is one that Jinpa uh, was very, very involved in. In fact, amazingly, Jinpa spent who's based in Montreal and does this work with His Holiness, actually spent three years at Stanford working with me a week a month Mm. on developing uh, some of these uh, projects and specifically compassion cultivation training program, which we have found has had significant positive effect on individuals' uh, lives, not only from a physiology point of view, but even subjectively, where they indicate that uh, it it just changes how they look at the world and how they respond to the world. Yeah, I also want to ask you about some work. It looks like you're directly involved in the on the convergence between heroism, compassion, and altruism, and that that even including um, gang members. So, so first of all, what, you know, what what are you talking about when you talk about hero heroism? Well, this is actually uh, a collaborative project uh, with Phil Zimbardo, who you may know uh, is an emeritus Stanford professor, but uh, in the 70s designed the uh, Stanford Prison Experiment, which... Oh, that's where I knew that name. That's it. Yes, which is infamous, right? Mm -hmm. And at that time, he was studying... Say a little bit. Just summarize that study for people. Um, uh, well, what happened was he created a study whereby students at Stanford were either put in the position of being a prisoner or a guard. Yeah. And in a very, very short period of time, the it had deteriorated so much that many of the prisoners became very, very uh, uh, submissive, and many of the guards became actually quite brutal. Yeah. And they had to actually interrupt the experiment because of the profound negative effect uh, that it was having on these individuals. And what it showed was how context and circumstance can change this veneer that we perceive ourselves as being civil and actually turn us into what we would hate to be thought of, which is a a brutal uh, human being or somebody who... Uh, has no power, and and uh, and so this veneer that we have of sort of having it together and being strong can immediately also 
go away. Mm -hmm. So Phil did that work, and it's had a huge effect. Uh, and in fact, there's a recent documentary about that. But, uh, yeah, and what's interesting <clears throat> about that in connection with what you're doing with him is that, that that's one of the studies where we say we point out and say, look, this is what we're really like, right? Just, just, just take off the veneer and we're brutes. Correct. Yeah. But, but the other side of that, which is what we're exploring, is the reality also, though, that if you create the right circumstance— what we perceive as our highest ideals as humans suddenly blossoms. Mm. And this gets back to this open-heartedness, if you will. And the point is, in regard to the study we were alluding to with gang members, is it is a presumption that, given the right circumstance, Actually, most people will do the right thing, mm. the majority of people, and that this concept of being a hero as being something which is an unusual attribute of is, in fact, something that is available and should be embraced by all of us because... Being a hero doesn't necessarily mean that you have to, you know, jump off a bridge into freezing water to pull somebody out of the water. Hmm. Being a hero can simply recognizing a, a, a situation where somebody is at risk and just making the effort to go and just help them. And it could be even uh, seeing a, an elderly person having difficulty crossing the street or seeing a person perhaps being bullied and just intervening. And the physiologic effects that individuals uh, uh, get, if you will, or what occurs in terms of making them feel good or having the release of this, uh, these hormones associated with reward is actually quite, quite amazing. And so you, you've actually worked with gang members on creating a different uh, context, a different set of circumstances uh, that makes that more possible for them? Exactly, because mm -hmm. it's changing. You know, we talked about when I was 12 and having this person, this teacher, giving me a different way to look at the world and how it profoundly changed me from being in a position of believing that I had limited possibilities to have unlimited possibilities. And frankly, I was no different than these gang members. They yeah. have grown up in difficult circumstances, often to the point where they felt threatened if they did not join a gang. And they saw that they didn't have a whole way out. They, they did not have mentors. They did not have a future. They were from poverty. But when you give them instruction and training and to show them a different world and how they do in fact have potential you don't write them off as a gang member yeah right you, just just yeah giving them that label you, is part of the problem it's absolutely yeah. when you regardless of how many tattoos they have how threatening they just superficially appear when you give them the gift of recognizing their humanity, everything changes for so many. And, you know, what's so sad is that you'll see these kids, you know, they may be 18, 19, 
But when you talk to them and you sit with them and you listen to how much they've suffered and you recognize in many ways they're still children and they're just looking for that person who will... Yeah. Embrace them. Yeah. And love them. It's... Yeah. You know, I was... It can be just really extraordinary. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's wonderful to, um, I know, I know people want to hear, they want to hear that too, right? Because the way, the way you're, we also tend to talk about these situations and these people as problems to solve, even with good intention. And, uh, there's something so emboldening and I think perspective shifting about talking about how it's possible to create the conditions to flourish. Uh, it's, it's the same same dynamic, but seen from a different through a different lens. No, no, that that's uh, you know I'll if I could share with you one yeah. quick uh, anecdote. I was in a position where um, uh, I actually had given uh, a significant amount of money to a charity who, frankly, misused it, and I was quite irritated and. Uh, uh, I decided to sue them against my wife's uh, advice, and uh, um, because she said, "You know that money spent, you're just, you know, wasting more money." I said, "No, this is principle. I will not let this happen." But anyway, I'd gone through quite a painful um, deposition regarding this matter in the middle of uh, downtown San Jose in a not so nice neighborhood, and I actually left to go to lunch by myself, and I was walking along with my head down in my own internal dialogue, actually, frankly, beating myself up about this whole situation, saying, geez, am I really that foolish? Maybe my wife's right. Maybe I shouldn't be so trusting. Sure your wife was right, but okay, keep going. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but the interesting thing is I was heading to this place to have lunch, and uh, uh, I was walking across the street through a gas station parking lot, and this young Afro-American individual in his 20s, who was not dressed particularly nice, walked up to me, and uh, he said, excuse me, uh, could you give me some money uh, for the bus for my mother and I? And, you know, I looked at this young man, and I, I immediately started going through my mind, oh, this guy's a drug addict. He's just scamming me for money. I don't see, and he said his car had broken down, and I don't see a car. I don't see a grandmother or a mother or anybody. And I go, oh, God, you know, oh, what am I going to do? And in this milliseconds, I said, no, <laughs> I'm, uh, uh, I'm still going to believe that what he's saying is true. And I gave him some money. So I immediately now walk away. And now I'm beating myself up doubly because now I'm reliving what my wife has told me, <laughs> plus the fact that I've just been duped again, right? Yeah. And I'm going, am I, am I really that horrible, that stupid that I have this internal optimism mm. uh, that of the goodness of everybody? And in fact, I'm just this walking around fool all the time. And uh, so I go down and I, I sit at this outdoor cafe and my head is down and I'm thinking through this. And uh, I feel a tap on my shoulder. And I turn around, and it's this young man. And he says, you know, you were so nice to me, I wanted to introduce you to my mother. Mm. 
Uh, and there you have it. Yeah. Um, I've just got we we've just got a few more minutes, but I so I was watching a um, I was watching a panel. I think it was a Sea Care conference that you did in 2014. It sounded so interesting, um, and I think I was watching like the final panel. It was you and four other people, and um, it was kind of final thoughts. And and somebody on the panel, another scientist who's working in this world of research, you know, said uh, she'd like to see. She she said she kind of thinks a um, a growth edge for the field is identifying the. There, there's so much being learned about what we can do in terms of fostering compassion and human flourishing with a much richer imagination about what that looks like. But she said, you know, we still need to keep identifying what are the hard, thorny problems we still don't know how to approach uh, in in modern culture for, for many people. And I wonder how you think about that. What, 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 are, if you, what, are, what would be those issues, those dynamics for you? Well, I think uh, actually we've touched on uh, some of them. One is... Uh, our nature, if you will, to feel threat uh, and this tendency toward tribalism. Yeah. And that continues to be a, a very difficult problem. And in fact, uh, uh, it's the cause of, of many of the heartache in the world today. Yeah. Uh, and I think uh, the other is uh, how do you create uh, sustainable change or habit change. And because in in many ways, uh, this is what this is about. We talked earlier about uh, one of the tendencies also to revert back to our base behavior when we feel threat. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting as an example, when you have somebody who, let's say, English is as a second language when they're threatened or they're ill, Oftentimes, they revert back to their primary language. And oftentimes, hmm. when somebody has grown up with a maladaptive behavior as a child to protect themselves, hmm. even though they may learn how to they know not better have that on some behavior, level. Yes. Uh -huh. When they get scared, oftentimes, they revert back to that. And it's something you have to be aware of, just as you have to be aware of the reality of cognitive or confirmational biases. Gosh, that's such an interesting and, way to say that. I mean, I think that happens in families, it happens in relationships, it happens in workplaces. No, that's absolutely correct. And when you pull all of this information together that we're learning about these different areas, and you can, if you will consolidate it, it gives you a much clearer picture, and actually, I think, an optimistic picture of uh, the possibilities. You know, there's a whole area of interest, <coughs> excuse me, uh, if you will, called neurohacking. <laughs> I haven't heard of that. Tell me. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, it's this belief that you can actually hack into your brain and change it. And whether it's with drugs or neuroprosthetics or a whole variety of technologies uh, that uh, you could take, if you will, away or ameliorate 
some of these negative tendencies we have and promote uh, these other areas that are more positive. As an example, we talked about the amygdala and some of its negative effects. If you could create a drug, an implant, a stimulator that could uh, ameliorate its effects and actually immediately respond when it feels a threat that's not a real threat, then that could change a whole set of interactions that uh, we have. I, I feel like we'd... It's hard, well, I don't know, maybe this is my lack of imagination. It's hard for me to imagine <coughs> to transcend the human condition with te- implants. But, I mean, you know, here's another thing that I think it has run through our conversation, but I, I want to name it, and you've written this, you know. It can hurt to go through life with your heart open. I mean, it's not... You know, it's not just you know. You can we can decide to not be tribal, and but you 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 open yourself to to more joy, and also to pain that you perhaps didn't let yourself feel before, and that that's something that well, we're going to resist as creatures, I think. Yeah, I mean, most of us have a tendency to desire pleasure rather yeah. than pain. Yeah. Uh, what though? I think anyone who has lived a life which means you have had pain and suffering, is that you realize that there is a gift in the pain and suffering because what allows you to do is to see the reality that this is part of life and it's part of a meaningful life. And when you're able to take that pain and suffering and use it to not hide from the world, to use it not to be afraid of every interaction, but to use it to say, yes, it is hard sometimes, but I have learned so many lessons and have become more appreciative and have more gratitude and see in so many examples how in the face of the greatest adversity, people have shown their greatest humanity. Yeah. Yeah. And it's when you recognize this, that that is when you're most proud of actually being part of the human species. Tell me about studies that are happening now or, I mean, this is such a wild frontier of neuroscience and understanding our bodies and brains and the interaction between them. Um, Tell me about some of the emerging edges of insight that are intriguing you at the moment. Well, actually, it's interesting because uh, one of the things, and we're actually... uh, uh, editing something called the Handbook of Compassion Science, which actually Oxford University Press will be publishing. But one of the concluding chapters that I'm uh, co-authoring is actually the emerging field of artificial intelligence and the impact it's going to have. And what's extraordinary about this emerging field is the recognition and, and isn't it strange, the recognition that you now have to bring in moral philosophers to interact with the computer scientists. Yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, because you have to imbue uh, uh, these robots, if you will, uh, 
with some degree of humanity. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's fascinating uh, to see how that's evolving and, and the form that's taking. And then, of course, uh, our ability now to better understand and affect gene expression. And I think, as an example, uh, we know that there are humans, and we've seen this in certain types of rodents, where the expression of certain types of genes results in a receptor not being able to, as an example, uh, have oxytocin affect it the same way. Right. And thereby you have in this rodent population, as an example, one group that is monogamous and another group, if you will, that is uh, uh, more amorous or polyamorous. And and also in, in the human example, the same type of thing where you have individuals who do not appear to have the capacity to connect with others. Right. To bond and deeply, if, like oxytocin. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so on the forefront is the ability to potentially alter this in some manner where you can uh, give people this gift of connection. Now, this heads off to a whole nother area, right? Because if you look <laughs> you at You might the, have spouses <laughs> slipping that into their partner's <laughs> drinks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, potentially, yes. Uh, 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 but it actually it brings up this whole point of who who are we really, right? Yes, yes, it uh, does. Exactly, because look at the prison population and the sociopaths. If we were to study them with uh, sophisticated imaging, we see that a number of them have disconnects between the ability to process these emotional states. And the question is, then, if it is a structural defect or a genetic defect, are they, in fact, responsible for their actions? Yeah, right. And then is it right or is it wrong if we have the ability to change that? To reform them in that way, biologically. Yes. Wow. Exactly. That's amazing. And just as you say, is it right or wrong to change your spouse the way they want you want them to be? (laughs) Yeah. But 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 it does it does raise the possibility that let's say in in the next decades, in this century, we we will be forced because of where technology and science are taking us to have to articulate a vision of human normalcy and and human flourishing i mean that's that's an that's an amazing uh thought that that's a discussion we're going to have to have collectively well i think that's right and uh again um you know, it, 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 it's interesting you say that because this is tangentially related to something called effective altruism. Have you heard of this yes, term? Yes, yes. I'm trying to think who I talked to about. Well, like maybe, yeah, anyway, yes, effective <laughs> altruism. So it's this idea that you should try to uh, benefit the greatest number with X number of philanthropic dollars. But the interesting thing is, it is the person with the dollars who decides what's most effective, yeah. right? It's not a true egalitarian or collective assessment of what is best for the group. Uh, and in fact, some people could argue it is, and what has traditionally been, a uh, white elitist group 
that is deciding the collective yeah. future. And that's another uh, interesting topic. Yeah. I, I feel like you've, you've answered this question in many ways in the course of, this, of our conversation, but I, I, I just want to ask and see if, any, if there's something you'd want to add, which is just, you know, you, you have this, this practice of which began um, many years ago. You, you work as a physician. You're also engaged in this world of research around um, compassion. And I, I just I wonder how this work that you do on a day-to-day basis um, and what you learn, both personally but also as a scientist, um, how, how does that continue to kind of infuse and shape the way you move through the world on an everyday basis? Is there, do you see concrete ways that that continues to change you or change you differently? Well, I, I, think, um, <clears throat> I think there are a couple of things. I, I, I think one is that <clears throat> at least what I try to do or what my intention or aspiration yeah. to do is, is to engage people in this open-hearted fashion. Uh, and in terms of my own practice with patients, as an example, one of the things that we see with physicians is that when they have a hopeless case or a terminal case, and oftentimes actually neurosurgeons, once that this reality is evident, they're gone. Yeah. And one of the things I found for myself is that the greatest learning and wisdom that I often uh, have uh, been privileged to uh, be present with is actually the transition of a person, their death, and uh, not being afraid of of death. And this is, uh, in Western society, in Western medicine, death has been separated from life and is not recognized as as part uh, of a cycle. And I think the other aspect is to, at least for me, to appreciate that every day I have the capacity to, through my actions, improve the life of at least one person. And what we forget sometimes is even smiling at another person, which takes very little effort, for that person who receives that, it can mean an immense amount. And not to forget that these small little actions, these little ripples, can actually end up creating a tsunami if each of us engage in them. Remember, when a person, and we know this from the science, when a person sees another person engage in a positive behavior, they're many, many times more likely to engage in that behavior themselves. Right. When, when and they see another person act with kindness and with generosity and with gratitude. It becomes and infectious, you, right? It becomes contagious. Exactly. Positive contagion. Exactly. Mm. And, of course, it can potentially become right. the opposite. If yeah. you, but in the context of the positive, it can become contagious. And I don't know a single person, if they knew they had the capacity to create that contagion, would not 
want to do so. Yeah. And I think having people understand, and this I think has been the theme of our entire conversation, that it's not the circumstance that's creating their emotional response, it is them. And oftentimes we forget that. In my own case as a child, this interaction with this woman, Ruth, did not change my life circumstance. It changed how I emotionally responded to that circumstance. And each of us has the ability to change how we emotionally respond to our life circumstance and create an environment where we ultimately can flourish and give those around us the opportunity to flourish. Yeah. So, so this is my last question. Um, near the end of your book, you, you make a grand statement. You say, we are at the beginning of an age of compassion. Um, what, what does that sentence hold for you? What do you see? How do you see that manifesting or its components? Well, sure. Uh, I think that, as you know, we had an age of enlightenment, which had a profound effect on our human species. And I believe that with the knowledge uh, that we are gaining through neuroscience, through a variety of technologies, and we're seeing the effect, the positive effect, if you will, of compassion in little pockets in society and how profound it can be. And again, I believe that as we experience, as we see, as we manifest these little pockets of compassion and caring for the other occurring, it is ultimately going to be recognized that this is the path that will lead us out of darkness Mm -hmm. into light Mm -hmm. and give every human being the opportunity to reach their own potential. Because remember, if we look at the resources of this earth, there is more than enough for every person on this earth at this present moment. If we look at what is spent on protecting borders, on military, on all sorts of things that do not get us one step more forward in terms of being, if you will, what we have the potential to be as a species. And, And I think that's really it, that there is the potential if things continue to manifest as they are, even with all the heartache and pain we see in the world, which, in fact, if you look at uh, uh, Stephen Pinker's book, uh, uh, it's actually the amount of violence is less proportionally than it has been. Uh, Exactly. That uh, it's not as bad as that. And in fact, the vast majority of people want to make the world a better place. It's just that sometimes we are exposed to what appears... Uh, to be the negative aspect of our humanity. But that's not the case. I believe that we're going to see, again, and I used this uh, metaphor before, we're going to see these little ripples turn into a tsunami, and that is when we know that we have reached our highest potential as a species when we care for everybody. Mm. Well, Jim, um, 
This has just been wonderful. I, you know, I have to say, it was when I I read the story of Ruth and uh, that before she taught you her magic, she made you promise that you will teach someone else what I'm teaching you this summer. And I, I think it's it's so lovely to see how you how you've picked up that promise in in a in a form that neither one of you could possibly have imagined um, or foreseen at that time. Um, so thank you, and thanks for making the time to do this. No, thank you so much, and I, I so appreciate uh, uh, you doing this, and uh, thank you for uh, sharing my story. And yeah. uh, I do hope uh, that I am uh, honoring uh, the promise that I uh, yeah. made to Ruth. Yeah, well... I think you are, and and congratulations again on the book, and um, and uh, I hope I, I do still intend to get out to Stanford one day. You're always welcome, and uh, I I really look forward to that. And I know our paths will uh, continue they will. to cross. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, thank you so much, and um, well, you, Lily will be in touch about what's going on with this. Okay, sounds great. Okay. Well, listen, take care, and yeah. thank you again, Lily, out there. <laughs> she's, she's listening. Okay. okay. All right. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thanks bye. again. Bye.